Hi, you're listening to WRBH Radio 88.3 FM. This is your host of New Orleans by Mouth, Chef Amy Sins. And on the phone today, I have a dear friend of mine, Miss Susan Reed. She is the food editor of Sift Magazine with King Arthur Flower. And she is taking her time to uh, visit with us and talk holiday goodies. So how are you doing, Susan? I'm great, Amy. It's great to be with you on the radio. I am so glad. Uh, For my listeners out there, uh, Susan and I got to meet at a food conference that we attended in uh, just outside of Portland, and uh, it was amazing. And whenever you make friends with somebody who understands baking, you keep them as your friend if you are not a baker. So I uh, I appreciate it because you have already been my phone-a-friend a few times, I think. I'm always happy to answer baking questions. I have a slight reputation as the human food encyclopedia, so. I love that. And I have to ask, you know, what is it about baking that gets some of us so nervous? I honestly think that, you know, there's a lot of information out there saying baking is a science and you can't freelance and blah, 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 blah. And people get really wound up over that for, and I, and I don't think it's as serious as that. What I tried to explain to people is that there are certain rules and regulations that you have to respect. It's not very different than driving a car. If you understand that you're going to stay on the right side of the road and that you're going to use your directionals and that certain rules are all going to be followed, you can drive that car wherever you want it to go. And baking is exactly the same way. Once you understand what you can't mess around with, then you're freed up to do anything that you want within those parameters. I mean, that makes perfect sense when you put it that way because... You know, the more we bake and the more we pass down family recipes, you start to realize that we're probably not doing it the same way that our grandmother did it or our great-grandmother did it because the recipe changes over the years. So then it is an art and not as much of a science as long as you follow the rules. And I think that our, you know, generations before us, a lot of things weren't written down. They weren't, you were expected to know these things because you were brought up in a kitchen watching this happen and seeing the cause and effect for yourself. And because baking used to happen every day right. in households all over the country, then that's just not the case anymore. Well, what can we do to get people more excited about baking at home? I think part of it is to de-intimidate it. Um, a lot of people are put off by, you know, if you follow Instagram feeds, and you know, I'm, I'm one of those people putting food out there on Instagram that looks so perfect all the time, I think people get freaked out because what they make may not be the same. And it's partly practice. You know, I think everyone wants everything to be at the nth degree on their first try, and that's just not really realistic. You've got to get in there and get dirty and screw it up so that you can figure out how not to screw it up again. And, you know, it makes perfect sense because as a chef, I tell people all the time, don't try a recipe for the first time when you have guests coming over for dinner. You need to practice it. You need to make sure it's great. And sometimes, I mean, I hate to say it, as a person who wrote a cookbook, there are errors. And sometimes we just 
don't always write it down the way it should be. And so you realize that it's not always the fail of the baker. Sometimes it's the fail of, you know, we edited it and we typed teaspoon instead of tablespoon. And you only find out those mistakes by testing it. Well, and the other thing, too, is people don't discriminate about what their sources are. A lot of times people will look at a picture and say, oh, I want to make that. And whatever picture got put out there on the Internet may or may not have a solid recipe that anybody even bothered to test sitting behind it. So, uh, I mean, you look up for certain recipes and you'll find the same recipe um, stolen (coughs) and cloned over and over again. And if people can't tell you how much the weight of one cup of flour is in that recipe, then you're flying blind. You just don't know. Well, and you know, that makes a lot of sense because so many times like we'll get on our Pinterest or we'll be on Facebook and we'll see this beautiful picture and you realize that's not even the picture. That picture is from a whole nother recipe. It's just of the same type of dish. Mm -hmm. And so we just assume our stuff is going to be as beautiful as that. But like you said, it's not always an accurate representation. Well, you know, people don't put on a fashion gown from the runway and expect to look the same way as the model going down the runway did. (laughs) So why do you expect (laughs) your first attempt at a recipe to look as good as the one that's all primped and poofed and fluffed up on camera? And I I think that makes perfect sense. And, you know, in today's age, we we get excited and we want to take pictures of things that we we cook and we create. But... uh, you know, when we look at it, we're like, oh, I I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've taken a picture of something that looks absolutely beautiful on the table. But when I look at it on my iPhone, it's not always the same. (laughs) But I go, it tasted great. It was beautiful in the moment. Let's just enjoy the moment and not worry about the photograph. (laughs) I think it's kind of hard to really enjoy food if you're if you feel like you have to document everything at the same time. Like, how would you feel if you had to document yourself vacuuming your house? (laughs) Silly. It is. And it makes perfect sense, though. My husband would probably (laughs) want to document that to be like, oh, my God, she vacuumed the house. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, as we're getting into the holidays, people do seem to get in that baking and cooking spirit. Maybe we have a few days off of work. The family's all hanging out and we want to to make something special as gifts for friends and family. Mm -hmm. Where do you recommend that we start? I think that if you're lucky, you know, you have some sort of taste memory from when you were a kid. I remember when we were little, one year my mother decided that we would make popcorn balls to hang on the Christmas tree. And I remember making, it was such a great thing to do as a kid because your hands were buttered and you were, like, forming this hot caramel corn into, like, these spheres. So it was a combination of, like, Play-Doh and sugar moment. It was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and cookies are the same way. I mean, most kids start out with something as basic as a sugar cookie to cut it out and to decorate it. And nobody really expects a kid to make a perfectly executed you know, photo-ready cookie. So those are great places to start just because the pressure's off. You know, you can, you can mix butter and sugar and roll it out and, you know, have a great time with it. And even for something like that, there are ways to do it 
that make it a lot easier in the first place. So first of all, you start with a good recipe. Mm-hmm. Um, my favorite one is on the King Arthur Flour website, and it's a recipe for a dough called stained glass cookies. So it's a sugar cookie that has a little bit of cream cheese in it and a little bit of nutmeg, and it rolls like a dream, and it tastes so good. It's A lot of sugar cookies are sort of like a blank canvas. Yeah. This one is you could just eat it out of hand for just pleasure anytime you want. And then once you make the dough, a lot of these roll-out doughs, they tell you to chill them. What people don't ever say, and I don't understand why recipes don't say this, if you're going to chill dough that's going to be rolled out, when it's in the bowl and it's soft, put it on a piece of parchment, put a piece of plastic over it, run over it with your rolling pin so it's about a half an inch thick, and then chill it that way. And then half the work is already done. I mean, that makes perfect sense because how many times are we like, oh, my God, this is so hard. This is so much work. And we could have saved ourselves work. So you put the mixing bowl in the refrigerator with this basketball-sized thing of dough, and it gets hard as a rock. And then you're like, okay, this is not fun. So so if you want to do something like rollout cookies, chill your dough in slabs that are already in the shape that are close to what you want to use. And the other thing that people don't ever think to do is break the process up into two or three days. Make the dough, put it in the refrigerator, and chill it. And you can come back to it a day later, two days later. It's fine. You don't have to do every single step from start to finish in one day. Now, here's a question, because now that's got my brain going, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. Okay, we could roll out the dough, have it on some sheets. The kids could cut it, and then... uh, you know, it it works out great. Now, if we are having people over for the holidays for a few days in a row, maybe tonight we have cocktails with friends, tomorrow someone's stopping by to drop off gifts at brunch, should we be making a fresh batch in that moment? Or are they going to keep over the course of three days and still be as good? It totally depends what kind of recipe that you're going to do. Um, In general, anything that's like a a sugar cookie or a shortbread, actually shortbreads, things with lots of butter in them, tend to be better if they've been stored for a little while. Um, Anything with booze in it is better once it's had a chance to hang around. Mm -hmm. So if you know you're going to have a lot of company come in and out, there are certain recipes where it's a great idea to make it like the week before they're all going to come, and by the time they get there, they'll be perfect. I like that. And it takes all the stress and the work out of it. Anything you can do in advance is uh, time is like gold. Now, so if I'm having all these people come over or I'm, you know, I have friends out of town and maybe I want to send them some jars of jelly that I made and some cookies. Are there certain things that ship better than others? And is there a suggestion of how to pack it so that they don't end up with cookie crumbles at the end? Yes, most definitely. Uh, In general, for something that you're going to ship, bar cookies tend to be a great choice because they're usually fairly moist, so they don't get stale when they're being shipped. Um, I have a hermit bar recipe that I send all over the place. And in fact, just about an hour ago, I make what I call Christmas brownies. It's a fudge brownie recipe from the King Arthur website. And then in the last 10 minutes of when it's being baked, I sprinkle the top with crushed candy canes, Mm. and they sort of melt and make this really pretty mint 
crunchy topping on top of them. And they're super moist, and they'll, you can ship those, and 10 days later, nobody will ever – it's like you just made them. They're really, really good for that. And for how to pack things and how to send them, I like square metal tins for things like that, and I tend to pack them uh, – I have a family full of engineers who all say a tight load is a safe load. So <laughs> <laughs> you basically cube them out so they're pretty dense, and – Anything that you put inside that tin will do well. Another friend of mine has been known to save Pringles cans. Oh, I don't know if she smart. rinses them out, and but she um, she stacks like round cookies in those Pringles cans and ships them that way. That is a neat idea. I mean, it, you realize you don't get all these tricks until you start having these conversations with people because we get in our our little world of the way that we have always done it. And then you yep. go, oh, my gosh, what a great <laughs> idea. But I don't want to be the one that has to eat all the Pringles because <laughs> the combination I, of eating the Pringles and the cookies is probably not going to be good for the waistline. <laughs> I actually – she actually asked people – like starting around Thanksgiving to save their Pringles cans if they were going to have company. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> you know, so many times I have, like my mother-in-law, she has a signature cookie and mm-hmm. I I don't even know where the recipe came from. It probably came out of a local cookbook and it's just this butter cookie that we love. And you start to go, okay, well, now we're going to have a recipe swap. But then you start to realize we have a lot of the same things because just like we don't always have this, you know, new ideas or different ideas, we start to realize that in our group, everybody likes a lot of the same things. Is there mm. anything that we can do or something that we should really throw into a cookie swap to? spice it up a little. Well, it's almost sort of universal that any cookie swap that you walk up to is going to have like Mexican wedding cookies, mm-hmm. right? Everybody does them. Um, sometimes bourbon balls where you have chocolate cake crumbs and plenty of bourbon and who doesn't like that? Right. So, I mean, you have to sort of walk the line between the things that you look forward to all year and something that isn't just the same thing done over and over again. And I would say that something that you don't see very often on cookie swaps that also gives you a lot of room for creativity would be sandwich cookies. Because um, I don't know if you follow um, Stella Parks at all on Serious Eats, but she's got a genius um, cookie filling where she takes brown butter and it's basically brown butter and confectioner sugar, but it's a firm cookie filling without depending on shortening. Mm Mm-hmm. And you can flavor that any way you can possibly dream of. I mean, the brown butter is really good, uh, just because then it's a little bit of caramel-type flavor. But then you could add peppermint to that. You could add um, any kind of, like, citrus flavoring to it that you want. And then you take a roll-out cookie dough, cut your circles, and then fill it with this incredibly yummy filling. And if you really want to get fancy... I should say after that, you can take that sandwich cookie and then dip it in chocolate. Dip it in chocolate. Yum. And then put more sprinkles or happy things on that. And that's something that is familiar enough that people will say, I know what that is. But it's different enough that you can put any kind of flavor to it that they might. I mean, think about putting some chai in your sandwich cookie filling. I love it. That would be a pretty cool thing. 
So, um, or making like a matcha shortbread if you want something green. Um, so there are some flavor combinations that are out there in the Instagram world that are intriguing. So if you pick one or two of those that you're kind of curious about and then take put that into a familiar form, you will have something that will really turn heads and people will say, holy smokes, how did you do that? That's great. I love that. And, you know, I've kind of taken that idea. I actually used the uh, King Arthur flour recipe for stroopwafels. Mm-hmm. And uh, for my listeners out there, it's just like this amazing kind of cookie that you do. And I have a Pazell press and then uh, it has a filling and you put it over the top of your like mug of hot tea or coffee and it kind of starts to warm it and get it mm-hmm. delicious. And uh, once I bought the Pazell press, I said, okay, now I have to make everything in a Pazell, right? Because <laughs> I have the machine, let's make it work. And so we started playing with things like sweet potato and cane syrup mm. and uh, chocolate and coffee. And you start to realize once, like kind of back to what you were saying about once you know the rules and you know how to stay on the road, mm-hmm. then you can get a fancier car <laughs> and you can get exactly. a little bit, you know, more creative, right? Yeah. Um, another thing that I really find is that there people have rules at their cookie swaps and they're kind of unspoken rules because you see <laughs> things like cookie swap, but you know, my mother-in-law makes the butter cookies. Don't try to compete with the butter cookies or (laughs) so-and-so's husband doesn't like pecans. So try to avoid putting too many pecans or else he's going to complain whenever he gets the (laughs) tin of cookies from the swap. How do you feel about incorporating savory pastries and things into a cookie swap? I find in situations where people are looking at sugar overload that they may, people will attack anything that is made with cheese or something like that just because they're they're looking for some relief in a way. Um, And and actually that is something that is very easy to make. Uh, We have lots of good recipes for like cheese pennies or crackers and, and those are easy to do, more easy to do than people think. I mean, it's just a very thin sheet of dough that you roll out and you get out your pizza wheel and then you can top it with anything that you like. And frankly, thinking of all the holiday occasions that are coming up where you're going to have cheese trays and places where there's going to be dips, like if you're the one that has homemade crackers, think about how cool that would be. Yeah. And and like you said, people kind of get a little on sugar overload. Yeah. And with cheese crackers, you know, again, you have your base and you get to be a little bit creative Mm -hmm. and uh, you can have a lot of fun with it. And Mm -hmm. crackers aren't as complicated as we like to think they are, but they sound pretty fancy. Well, yeah. And think of the cred you get. You know, you throw down with some savory crackers that have some cumin in them and a little bit of paprika for spice and, and it would really be... You know, people will think you're cool. Now, what do you think about um, for, you know, when you're doing a cookie swap or you're having people over for the holidays and you start to keep in mind people with with food allergies and things like that, maybe you need to have a dish that doesn't have any nuts, but you may need something that's Mm gluten-free. For someone who doesn't cook gluten-free on a regular basis, what do we do? You're best off going to a recipe that is, by its very nature, going to avoid those things. Meringues, this is a great time of year to 
do a meringue, and you can flavor them with peppermint. You can flavor them with cocoa, and, and it's just sugar and egg whites. And then with the egg yolks that you've got left over, you can sneak off and make yourself some pastry cream and <laughs> eat it in the corner where nobody can see you, which is what I would do. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Or there are other amazing things to make. Um, if someone is gluten-free, we um, there's a great recipe for a um, PJ has an almond bark, uh, an almond toffee crunch. That's a candy that's super yummy to make. It'd be great as a gluten-free gift. Some we have caramels um, that are made with boiled cider. Some other cool stuff like that. There are lots of places to go. On the King Arthur website, if you just type in the search box gluten-free or if you type in dairy-free, any of those things, all of the recipes that qualify under that will come up. And when we're doing things like this and we're baking and we're choosing our ingredients, does it matter the quality of the ingredient? Is all flour the same? Is all, like if we're going to do a bourbon ball, is all bourbon equal? Where should we be focusing our energy when we're choosing these ingredients? I think if you're baking, the quality of the flour is... I always think of flour as the backbone of the recipe, if it's a baking recipe. So the quality of the flour is important, and no, they're not all the same. And how you measure it, which is probably as important or even more so. So a lot of people measure flour different ways, and that's one of those things like you were talking about before, that's unconscious. People measure flour the way they always have, and they honestly can't tell you how they do it because they just do what they do. So certain recipes are written for, if you'd say take your measuring cup, you've got a metal measuring cup with a flat top, and you have a bin of flour, and you go into that bin and you dig into that and then just smooth off the top, and you put the amount of that, put that flour on a scale you're going to have 20% more flour in that measuring cup than you would if you were sprinkling the flour into the measuring cup from above wow. and just sweeping the top off of it. So if a recipe calls for two cups of flour and you've put 20% more flour into that recipe for every single cup, you're actually using almost two and a half cups. And then all of a sudden you're saying this dough is really dry or crumbly or my bread's not rising and it's I don't understand. I did everything that they said. So I think that measuring your flour is almost more important than making sure that you've got the right stuff. Yeah. Protein levels in flour change. Like in the south, the flour that is grown there and used is mostly what's called softer. So you've got flour with lower protein levels in it. And... It's got a higher level of starch, which is what makes an amazing biscuit, but it might not be as good for making a loaf of bread. And and that's where the science starts to come in. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I feel like that's going to be our next show is going to be talking about the science of baking and uh, how to make things correctly in different climates. So put mm-hmm. that on your list of you oh, know, cool. future shows. But um, as we're kind of just finishing up, we have a little bit of time left and we now have all these great ideas of cookies, uh, cheese crackers, meringue, almond toffee crunch. Where can people find out more about King Arthur flour and the magazine and where can they get recipes? So kingarthurflour.com is our website, and we have more than 2,000 recipes. If you go to the website, there are several tabs across the top, and if you just click on recipes, 
you can have a really good time. And a lot of the recipes have blogs associated where you can see how to make that recipe step by step. And another neat thing about us is that we have people, we have a whole team of people that are there to answer your questions. So if you get halfway into something and it doesn't look right, you can chat with us online. You can pick up the phone. There are people that sit right next to my desk answering baking questions all day. And if they get stumped, they stand next to my desk and say, this person is asking about this. What do you think? So How I think cool. and the magazine Sift is also available at King Arthur Flower and you can find it wherever magazines are sold, like in the grocery store or at a bookstore or Costco sells it. Well and I y'all also have a YouTube channel because I have been guilty of telling people, Oh yeah, I know how to do that and then I'm like, Okay, so how do I form a baguette and shape a baguette. And I went, oh, look, King Arthur has a video on YouTube. And now I look like a, you know, a professional. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think having the opportunity to see video, have almost a phone a friend, but recipes that you can trust and recipes that are out there that you know are going to work is part of what's going to make you a better baker. It improves your odds before you even get started. And to have somebody who will answer a question about that recipe, I mean, a lot of people put things out there, but there's nowhere to go if something doesn't seem to work. And we will stand there and answer your questions any way we can. Well, so as we finish up, give us three tips for the novice baker who wants to do something fun for the holidays. Where do they start? Like, give them three tips. Okay, I would say, first of all, um, choose your recipes and then read them all the way through before you start something. And almost before you touch any equipment, as you're reading it, make it in your head. Almost, have you ever seen, like, really good skiers visualize their ski runs before they go down the hill? Yes. That's almost what you need to do with your recipe. So that's first. Second is to... Measure properly. Um, a lot of novice bakers don't have a scale, but make sure all your measuring cups are from the same set because there's no standard, and people don't realize that two different measuring cups from two different sets will have two different proportions. But if they're from the same set, they will all, all your proportions will be in line. Um, and third, don't be afraid to ask a question um, before things get too far. <laughs> and, you know, oh, I did this whole thing and it didn't work. It's like, okay, halfway down that lap, we could have probably saved you, but you didn't ask. <laughs> I love that. So read the recipe, use the right measuring tools, ask questions, and, you know, be confident. And if it doesn't work, don't be afraid to throw it away or, or you know, toss it out the window. Yeah. Well, you know, the cost of education is, is, especially when it comes to baking, is really not that much. Absolutely. And, as opposed to tuition in any other universe. So if you put it in perspective that way, you should feel a little bit more free to experiment. Well, Susan, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Uh, for our listeners out there, you're listening to Miss Susan Reed with uh, King Arthur Flower and the food editor of SIF Magazine. This is Chef Amy Sins with WRBH Radio 88.3 FM, the host of New Orleans by Mouth. Until next time, ciao.